Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. And this episode is sponsored by Allworth Financial and the State of the Industry Podcast. Got a lot on the docket today. Kicking it off with Eric Kittner, Chairman and CEO of Mineta, a $27.4 billion RIA. Uh, we're going to talk about some uh, movement in the wealth management space, uh, looking at how the maybe the wirehouse industry or the some of the white shoe firms, uh, primarily JP Morgan, is is trying to nudge its way into the RAA space, and uh, Eric's going to enlighten us a little bit on that. Uh, but first of all, uh, how you doing, Bruce? How you been? I'm good. We missed you last week, Professor. Yeah, I had to uh, take care of some uh, golfing business, so uh, got that <laughs> got that all squared away. <laughs> got got my last round in before uh, before the grind of the holidays. Sounds season. good. Yes. So, uh, Eric, how you doing? Thanks for being here. Well, I, uh, Jeff, I'm doing great, and I appreciate uh, you and Bruce hosting me. Yes, thank you very much. Bruce, you want to you kind of kick it off with Eric? Yeah, sure. Hey, Eric, how are you? I'm fantastic. Uh, and Mineta is in St. Louis, correct? Yeah, we are, we're in St. Louis. We have offices in Kansas City, Denver, and the Boston area as well, but we really started in St. Louis, correct? So I know you've been there for a long time, since 2004, I believe. Yeah, you know, we'd like you to talk about, you know, Mineta, your role at the company and the like. But one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you this week is just kind of get your impression. You've been an RIA guy, it seems, your whole, you know, professional your life or a big chunk of it. And it it's just interesting. Jeff and I were talking about um, J.P. Morgan trying to establish an RIA type of um call center or remote business. Um, they revealed that in a filing on, on a new form um, ADV as of November 1st. So a couple of weeks ago, you know, that comes on the heels of, of Goldman Sachs a couple of years ago buying United Capital and the like. So we're interested in talking to guys who are true RIA uh, industry people and their impressions of Wall Street kind of making inroads in this business, these big Wall Street banks. But first, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and Mineta. And I know you guys have been making acquisitions too, of course. Yeah, so so happy to give a little bit of background. I have been in the industry for now approaching 19 years. I actually came out of the accounting world. I spent uh, four years in public accounting, started with Arthur Anderson on the East Coast, and we ran into the Enron issue and uh, caused a lot of disruption. So found myself moving to the Midwest with my wife and went to work for a regional firm and really kind of stumbled, I would say, across the RIA space. As I discovered what I wanted to be when I grew up, I found the RIA space. I found Mineta in 2003. I joined the firm and for the first really 14 years of my career, I was solely focused on building a client business. Uh, I had a partner at the time and we focused on providing comprehensive family, what we call family CFO services to successful uh, high net worth, ultra high net worth families and, and really spent my first 14 years doing that uh, in, a, in a fee only capacity. All right. So you were an advisor, in other words. So I was an advisor. Correct. I was an advisor. And then uh, I've seen a lot of change, obviously, in the industry. Uh, one of the things that our firm, Manetta, is focused on is has been succession plan, building a sustainable business. And, and true to form, the, the partners of the firm felt that in 2018, uh, I was the right next person to lead the firm. 
and have really been leading the strategic direction of Mineta since really January of 2018. And, and at that time, we were uh, solely focused, I would say, on organic growth model, uh, hiring, training, developing next-gen right. talents. And, and now we've, we've looked at the world and said we have to continue that organic growth engine, but we've also looked at M&A activity and expansion beyond St. Louis, and we've been doing that now for the last four to five years. Amazing how much the world has changed in three years, four years or so, right? Uh, it's pretty amazing. I mean, as we get into the discussion on the RIA landscape, I mean, uh, it's pretty remarkable what we're seeing in the space at this point with the activity, the transactions. And, you know, I've heard a lot of uh, experts in, this, in the area talk about how this is really the beginning of the ballgame. Uh, you know, people have referenced the first or second inning of a, of a baseball game. And the only thing I would say is it's maybe the first or second inning of a game that could be a doubleheader. I think we're very early on and we're starting to see significant momentum in the, in the RIA space. Um, we obviously have our thoughts and opinions as to why that is, but I think we're really just getting started. Are we talking about the newfangled seven-inning doubleheaders or the old-fangled <laughs> nine-inning doubleheaders? You, you know, Eric, you're I a played, St. Louis guy, so you must be a Cardinal fan. I'm a New York guy. I'm a huge New York Mets fan. You know, so I grew up on the East Coast. I was a huge Phillies fan. Uh, frankly, I was a huge Mets fan. I hey. was a big. I would love Daryl Strawberry, one of my favorite players. Uh, we used to go watch him all the time. But I'll tell you, I was a traditionalist. I liked the pennant race. I liked when yeah, you know, the AL and the NL didn't play each other. So uh, I'm more of a traditionalist uh, in terms of baseball. But that's just me. So before we talk about Mineta's expansion, you know, strategy a little bit and how that's altered under you, I mean. When you take over as CEO in 2018, there's no Goldman Sachs hasn't bought United Capital yet, right? There's right. no, um, uh, you know, I think right at that time, uh, UBS and Morgan Stanley said uh, we're stepping out of the broker protocol for recruiting, right? So that had just happened, um, which was to slow down the exit of their advisors into firms like yours or setting up their own RAs, which would eventually become a part of a larger RA like, like Mineta's and the such. And there is definitely JP Morgan hadn't opened its own RIA type call center remote advisor uh, group, which is opening up right now. So what do you, and, and also if you want to count, <clears throat> I count private equity money as being part of Wall Street. Um, so the flood of private equity money hadn't reached its, its heights as it is now, or maybe in, in, into the future. Could you just speak about your perception of this, all this attention and all this money from Wall Street and what is it doing to the RAA marketplace? And if you care to comment specifically on, on Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or anybody else. Well, I, I would say I'd, I'd step back and if I look at uh, what we believe uh, the, the RAA model, it, it, it's winning is what all this is telling you, right? The, the capital flowing into what the What do you space, mean by that? It's winning. It's winning in the fact that the consumer at the end of the day, I believe, is fundamentally uh, being drawn to the RAA model, uh, which is the fiduciary model. You know, right. I started 19 years ago in the industry and we had people that would walk in our door and they'd say, I'm not paying my broker anything. And um, <laughs> to, to a knowledge base. <laughs> really, today, they said that. Yeah, there were there were people that just didn't know. It wasn't transparent. It wasn't clear. It wasn't described to them. And as crazy as that would seem to me sitting in the space uh, and sitting in an office having that conversation, I realized that that was more still of the norm in the industry, right? So 
Uh, fast forward 19 years, and I think the fiduciary standard actually acting in a fiduciary capacity as an advisor is the model that resonates best with the consumer, the end client, right? So if, Wall Street if I, is interested in this in in RAs because it's it's siphoning clients. Is 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 they're losing their large clients to RAs. I believe that the consumer understands the difference is, is learning more about what it means to be a true fiduciary rather than to act in somebody's, um, you know, a suitability standard, right. uh, but, but truly act as an advocate. I believe that there are plenty of advisors that say, I want to be a true fiduciary for my client. And the intersection of those two things is really the RA marketplace. That's why you think I believe the Goldman Sachs and the JP Morgans, can they be successful here? From a general perspective, yes. I think the reality is there's going to be multiple flavors of RIAs in the world, right? And so at the end of the day, the RIA is, is the model, but we're going to have lots of different flavors of RIAs that are going to exist to meet the various consumer demands, right? So when you look at the JP Morgan model and what I've read on it is that it's going to be the more, I'll call it mass affluent. If I read it correctly, though, I think you have to have an account of $25,000 or yeah. above. Yep. It, that's, that is a very different model than a firm like Mineta, who's focused on high net worth, ultra high net worth, a very low client to advisor ratio, less than 50 clients per advisor. That model is different than JP Morgan. It doesn't mean that JP Morgan won't be successful. They've got a machine. They've got tremendous infrastructure to build out that RIA and capture. Oh, assets. yeah, no doubt. No doubt. What they're what they're shooting for, at least in the initial onset, is a little bit different than the client that we serve. Yeah. Interesting. Jeff, you got anything for Eric or today or what? Yeah, Eric, a couple things I wanted to one thing I wanted to go back on is I hear this a lot from the RIA space about uh, consumers, the fiduciary standard resonating with consumers. And I just, I think it just, you know, best interest and fiduciary standard. I just believe that that is noise to most consumers. I mean, you might have a lot of real, some really sophisticated consumers that are in touch and reading the fine print and all their statements and everything, and they know what they're paying their advisor. But I think it's a lot more popular to talk about within the wealth management space than it is among consumers. Consumers hear best <laughs> interest and it's explained. And they, you know, they think, oh, this, my guy's looking out for my best interest. And I was like, oh, my guy's, you know, he's operating under a fiduciary standard. And consumers are like, I mean, I don't know if you, if you've actually surveyed consumers, Eric, or, or if, if you've actually talked to each of your um, clients, and I'm not saying that your clients don't completely get it 100%, but I know it's explained to them, but I just, I, I still believe that it's too much of a mishmash. And it's probably- so Jeff, you're asking if there's a way to measure that. Well, I'm, I'm asking if there, there's, it's ever been measured, because I right. don't think you can measure it. And I'm also asking if, if Eric doesn't see the, the, potential for confusion out there among consumers right oh, but yeah so let me let me step back there's a tremendous amount of confusion from a consumer perspective but anecdotally you know we work with 6000 you know high net worth ultra high net worth families across the country i will tell you more and more as we're interviewed in in working with those families the question comes up are you a fiduciary so mm -hmm. 
I'm not saying that the, the general population of consumer understands the difference between the best interest or a, a true fiduciary, but I'm going to tell you from a, a, a high net worth or ultra high net worth consumer base, um, it's different. So you can't take every potential client out there and say the level of education or knowledge in the industry is the same. Um, and that's not, a, that's not a knock on anyone. That's just uh, the facts that more of our clients that have significant asset base are well aware of the difference between, uh, you know, a traditional wirehouse and broker versus a, um, a true fiduciary in an, in an RIA space. Well, we'll see how that continues to morph with uh, operations like JP Morgan coming out with their own RIAs and then they're going to be fiduciaries and that's going to be. I don't know. I, like I said, I'm, I'm not saying anybody's not making a real effort. I just feel like, you know, and I'm kind of buried in this stuff all day long and I still can't imagine how consumers can figure it out um, because half the time I can't figure it out and it's my job to figure it out. Anyway, on the other thing, do you, do you guys have private equity backers? We don't, you know, we, uh, so interesting The you brought up private equity before. I mean, you've seen a flood of capital to the space, right? So I, I, re, I, I talked about the, the business model working and, and winning as I believe the kind of the vehicle that makes the most sense as you build out your wealth management business. Uh, we have avoided outside capital, right? So we've been under the uh, operating under a, a partner owned firm. We have 50 equity partners in the firm. Uh, we're the owners of the firm. And we really believe fundamentally that puts us in a position where the only people we have to answer to are our clients and our talent. What we have avoided is outside influence of capital. Uh, frankly, at you know approaching 30 billion of assets under management at this point, we've got capital internally. Uh, we've got uh, enough scale and size that if we need to invest in the business, uh, we can do that. And, and fundamentally, we're focused on transitioning our generation of uh, owners internally, meaning that uh, we fundamentally believe to be a fiduciary and to serve our clients for what we say for generations to come. We're focused on building sustainable businesses, which means our underlying client relationships get transferred from one generation to the next to the next. Uh, mm -hmm. The business owners get paid for that, and there's an internal transaction. Um, and what we believe is that's fundamentally the best answer for our clients, and we don't need outside capital in that model. You know, that's funny. I was reading something the other day about uh, the challenge that's facing some of the more traditional succession plans, especially when it's ownership inside the firm buying the, you know, the, the I guess the, the senior people out um, because of all these, the valuations spiking so much. And you got to give pr private equity some of the credit for driving up those valuations. Um, are you worried at all about that, about your kind of pricing yourself out of the market for your next generation advisors to be able to buy your firm? Yeah. So it's, a, it's a, obviously it's a really um, uh, high uh, need or, or a relevant topic right now, given where valuations are. Obviously you're seeing a bank like CI come in and scoop up, not, you know, two or $300 million firms, but five and seven and $9 billion firms at what appear to be, uh, incredibly rich valuations from our perspective. And uh, at the end of the day, yeah, we have to be conscious of what's happening in the outside market. But I think that speaks to 
a bit of the culture of our firm in the commitment to our clients. And you can't, well, there's two things. One is this is a snapshot in time, right? This is the, the current valuations, but things can change in the, in the future, right? They may not always be as frothy. You may not have firms that have a, a near zero cost to capital forever. So valuations can change. So this is a snapshot in time. But, yeah. but the, other, the other piece is if you look at our model and you look at our next gen advisors who come in and help build the business and then own the business, the sum total of the transaction of our teams that, that go from first gen to second gen, it's not a one-to-one, one partner to the next. It's often one or multi-partners to multi-partners. And that wealth transfer happens over 10 to 15 years. In aggregate, it's not necessarily all that different than a transaction externally. And fundamentally, our belief is it allows us to look our clients in the face or continue to travel with them or, or play golf with them or hunt and fish when we're retired and know the team who's taking care of them and loving them and providing the services because our commitment to them was we're going to have that team in place and we're not going to sell it to an outside party. When, what is the last acquisition you guys made? So we had uh, the Barry McNowski, the Barry Group in Worcester, Mass, uh, joined us really earlier this year. Our model in that transaction is uh, Mike and Sarah, the partners of the firm, they had spun off of uh, the, onto the Wells RIA platform. Uh, they left the traditional wirehouse model of Wells to go onto the, the Wells RIA platform. And they realized pretty quickly that they needed really scale and size to help them uh, grow the business and run the business. So here's here's our story. Advisors got into business to provide advice, right? We're passionate about sitting across from clients and helping them accomplish the goals and objectives they have. As we grow, you have all kinds of other needs from a technology solution, from an investment planning perspective, from uh, recruiting in, in anything in between, right? As a, as a firm that had about $700 million in assets under management, Mike and Sarah were spending most of their time running the business rather than focused on their clients and growing the business. They partnered with Mineta. They partner with us. They come on board. They take the Mineta brand. We at Mineta have 425 folks across the firm, but 110 of those folks are specifically there to provide the back and middle office services for Mike and Sarah to run their business. So compliance goes off their plate, uh, fee billing, onboarding of new clients, training, right, yeah. and I, all I that understand, comes to place. We understand how all that works and how the how the scale scalable model works. My my question is really about the the competition out there to buy firms and uh, especially the larger firms. And you guys are certainly in that space. I don't know. Maybe people are 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 asking you questions as a target, but what, what do you think of CI Financial in Toronto coming down here and just buying big giant firms and buying like crazy? They announced their 26th deal in two years just this morning. They're, they got 96 billion in USRA assets from zero two years ago. Um, that's, that's to me the best example of somebody pushing up valuations. Yeah. And I mean, I think I think their argument is, you know, that's the way that they're going to create real scale is not talking about two or five billion, but talking about 100 or 200 or 300 billion in the RIA space. You know, what I think about that is uh, at the end of the day, 
there's firms that are getting paid uh, a significant multiple to sell their client relationships to a large bank building an RIA. I think the inherent challenges that will come along with that are the integration of the culture, the integration of technology stack, the support I get as an advisor on that platform, all of the things that it takes to integrate $96 billion coming together in a couple of short years to do it in a strategic in way that ultimately works for the end client, right? So what we see in the M&A space is a lot of the rhetoric about how it's uh, multiples and the ownership and the second gen can't afford and all the other aspects. What we don't see as much about is how it affects the end client, right? What's mm-hmm. the impact to the end client? So I'm not, uh, we're not an acquire, right? The firm in Boston merged in with us. They become a platform or a, a partner on our platform. I was part of our brand, but we didn't write them a check and they weren't forced to sell us their clients. So our mm-hmm. model is a bit different. I'm not sure that, you know, every acquisition is going to prove to be a good acquisition. And if you're paying that multiple, you better have a really good internal uh, model for, for kicking up organic growth. You know, mm-hmm. for, for it to make sense from a return perspective, you better have a good organic growth engine and have a really good way to support those firms coming on the platform to help them grow. Yeah, thanks very much, Eric. Uh, uh, that was interesting and intriguing. I think the big kind of question I'm left with at the end of the interview for the future is as we keep an eye on Mineta, uh, how are you going to stave off uh, these giant private equity firms, man? You're going to need a big <laughs> stick, you know, uh, to beat yeah. these guys back. I mean, come on, you know, and a firm well, like yours must be very, you must be getting calls every day or every week, right? From potential buyers. Yeah, you can imagine we get we get pinged every now and again. And it doesn't really take a stick. It really takes a commitment from the partner base <laughs> uh, to, to, to focus on, you know, let's not get caught up in the noise. A metaphorical get, stick, Eric. Well, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. Valuations. Uh, you know, Daryl Strawberry's bat, perhaps. Yeah, you know? yeah. He had a sweet swing. I'll tell you what. Oh. Um <laughs> You know, so I think we can, uh, I think we'll be just fine, uh, you know, staying steady, having partner capital and finding good firms that that want to join that see the benefit of, you know, transitioning our clients internally from generation to generation. It's not for everybody, but I think we're big enough where we have we can compete in the space where we are. Eric Kittner from Moneta, thank you so much for dropping by the podcast this afternoon. Well, Bruce and Jeff, I really do appreciate the opportunity. You can't glance at the financial news without seeing a report about industry consolidation. But the good part is, with all that M&A activity comes choice. If you're thinking about succession planning or taking some financial risk off the table, or maybe you want to sell for cash and get some equity in a national firm, but how do you know which firm might be the best fit for you? Okay, folks, we're back. Uh, we're talking to two big, smart guys from Morningstar now. We've got Christopher Franz, Associate Director of Equity Strategies, and Alec Lucas, a strategist at Morningstar. We're going to talk about capital gains. I wrote a story recently uh, after reading something that uh, Christopher wrote, or, or Chris, I guess you go by, about um, the capital gains this year, what we're looking at. This, this comes up every single year. We know if you have a mutual fund uh, held outside a retirement account, uh, you very frequently inactively managed fund, you would get hit with capital gains distributions, even if your fund doesn't have a gain. 
performance wise. So, uh, Chris, give us a kind of an overview of what you found this year by looking at the data. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. And, and I think you're right on that. You know, holding a fund in a taxable account, this is something you really got to be got to be watchful. In 2021, what we found it was a continuation of the trends in 2020, which was you know high payouts from from equity oriented mutual funds, particularly those that that skew towards growth. You know, and, and just kind of the run up of the year. So through October of this year, the average U.S. equity fund was up over 20 percent, whereas the the average non-U.S. fund up just about 10. So you're seeing another year of strong growth across the board, coupled with that continued trend we see year over year. And again, the audience will be familiar with, and that's just strong outflows. So, so obviously these distributions matter and we're seeing these estimates come out, you know, they all come out this time of year. Most firms are going to be paying them in, in early to mid-December. And we're talking estimates that could be upwards of 10, even close to 20% of the NAV, which the point, Jeff, you described does have ramifications for investors that help hold these in taxable accounts. Is there any way around this? There really isn't, is there? I mean, I'm asking the question, but I, I kind of know the answer. I mean, because you get the alert or the 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 fund companies announce their capital gains distributions several weeks ahead of time. You could sell the fund and not incur the capital gains distribution, but then the, the flip side of that is you'd have to sell the fund, right? Yeah, that's correct. And in, in, in which case, you know, likely if you're an investor, you're, you're sitting on several years of embedded gains unless you're trading in and out of these. And, and certainly, you know, looking across your, your portfolio or from your advisor across your client's portfolio, you know, uh, I guess it's a good thing that there are less losses than, than normal, uh, given the run-up we've had over the last couple of years. But yeah, it's just something certainly to be aware of, you know, just like for, for a stock issuing a dividend, there's a declaration date, uh, a, 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 you know, kind of a hold a record date, and then the date in which the capital gain is paid. But yeah, it's, it's just something as a taxable investor that you just kind of have to be ready for. How, what are you seeing as far as anything stand out uniquely this year in, in the way these uh, funds are distributing capital gains. Anybody, I, I know there was a, a list that of uh, like 110 mutual funds that were distributing more than 20% this year, some more than 30%. Alec, anything that you saw looking at the, the data? So Chris has spent more time looking at the data for this year in particular, but I would say the, bi the big takeaway in general is that whenever you have a market downturn, uh, like we had in 2008, or obviously more recently in early 2020, uh, that imposes some capital losses, which can offset capital gains. And so you're going to see a drop in capital gains distributions in a year like 2020. But when you have a rising market, which is what we've seen really since the, the March 23rd, 2020 bottom, um, that rising market, uh, along with redemptions from open-end mutual funds, sets the stage for uh, capital gains distributions. And so you would expect, uh, just as you, you you set the table for not distributing capital gains in a year like 2008, whereas you start to put those back on the table in 2009, um, similarly in 2020, you know, you're going to have less capital gains distributions than you would in a year like 2021. So the, the real struggle for open-end mutual funds for shareholders in them who don't sell is they're sometimes against their will given capital gains in a rising market. Would you say that this is part of what's driving more mutual fund companies to convert to ETFs that don't have this same capital gain distribution issue? Tax efficiency is a big part of it. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, tax efficiency is is a huge consideration. Um, and, and in general, what open-end funds do is they socialize the costs of holding securities, whereas for an ETF, 
uh, each individual shareholder is pays that. So for example, bid offer spreads for, for, for uh, an ETF, you're going to pay that. So if you want to sell in the middle of the day, if you're worried, uh, someone may may make an offer that's below the net asset value because they anticipate the shares will decline by the end of the day. Whereas if you pull a trigger on selling an open-end mutual fund during the same day, you're going to get the 5 p.m. nav that may, may well go down further. Um, so if you want to sell in the middle of the day, you're sort of taking a chance and you have, a, opt, have to obviously accept, accept the offer. Um, whereas a mutual fund, it socializes the cost. Right, but you, you do not have embedded capital gains that are distributed through an ETF, right? The way they are in mutual funds? Yeah, their ability to do in-kind distribu- right. distributions with the market makers does, does make it that you don't, that you don't have to. Right. Uh, and the other component, obviously, is active versus active, passive. Active managers trade more. You have more tax efficiency in index products because they trade less. But index funds, open-end index funds, can distribute capital gains. And I think that's something that we saw this year sort of cut in, that there were several several index funds from different providers that were paying distributions upwards close to 10%. So, right. so I think the important thing, you know, for advisors and for, for investors is, you know, there, there is difference in picking index funds as well. Yeah. Is there anything that advisors can do to navigate around this aside from selling once the distributions are announced? I mean, there, there, there are signals, right? If a, if, if a uh, if there's a manager turnover, management turnover, you 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 might have some fund turnover. Um, if you see um, outflows from a fund, that's going to trigger selling, which which makes these funds uh, kind of realize the gains, stuff like that. Well, Morningstar through our Morningstar Direct program has the ability to look at capital gains, potential exposure through through you know, embedded gains in a fund, as well mm-hmm. as tracking flows. So, you know, if you've had a rising market combined with a lot of outflows from a fund, then that's a recipe for a distribution of capital gains. And so you can potentially get out ahead of that by selling the fund. Um, a lot of times, you know, massive outflows co- coincide with, with bad performance. And uh, obviously you don't want to, especially if it's a good manager, you've done a lot of due diligence on, you don't want to sell it a low. Uh, which you would in effect be doing. But I, I do think one thing for advisors to keep in mind and for investors more generally is we tend to think of capital gains in percentage terms and on an annual basis because that's how they're distributed. But it can also be helpful and instructive to think about capital gains distributions over, over multi-year periods and to understand how they can add up over time. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Morningstar is it has released um, what we call an income analysis capability based on the results of a hundred thousand dollar lump sum investment over a five year period, and we look at distributions that a fund makes, whether that's dividends or capital gains, both long and short, along with associated growth principal, and you can do adjustments as to whether you reinvest the dividends but take the capital gains or whatnot. But to give you an example, um, Vanguard 500 Index Admiral Fund, because it has an associated ETF with it, is able to purge itself of capital gains. And over the past five years, ended in September 2021, it distributed $0 of long or short-term capital gains. Contrast that with a fund like AMG River Road Dividend All Cap Value, $100,000 investment made five years 
prior to September 30, 2021, resulted in 25, more than $25,000 of long-term capital gains and a more modest figure of $369 of short-term capital gains. Mm. So you have a tax bill that is pretty meaningful uh, over that five-year period for the AMG fund versus the Vanguard 500 fund. And of course, because the AMG fund is all cap and a value-oriented fund, that kind of style has been out of favor relative to the S&P 500. So you actually did meaningfully worse just in a total return standpoint uh, in the AMG fund than you did in Vanguard 500. But if you had two funds that had equivalent returns uh, before taxes, capital gains distributions can be a really helpful factor to consider into whether or not you would be better from an after-tax standpoint. And Morningstar has a five-year tax cost ratio that we translate into basis points that takes into account things like capital gains distribution as well as dividend payouts. Uh, what about the simple policy of just holding your actively managed mutual funds in a qualified account? Yeah, what our research really does show is that uh, if you're going to invest in active, and, and I'm certainly a proponent of that, the way to do that is in a tax advantage account. Mm -hmm. Thanks for the overview, Bruce. Uh, anything for our, for our Morningstar friends before we send them back to their, their research? My question, I don't know if these guys can address or not, is the you know potential consequence of long-term capital gains uh, that financial advisors face, you know, in the coming uh, years of the Biden administration. I'm sure Alec and and Chris are well aware of the anxiety that advisors have about, you know, do I sell my firm now or do I sell it later and get hit with this, uh, uh, you know, a higher capital gains tax rate. I would say would that I had a crystal ball for that and all manner of things. I mean, you don't? But, uh, alas, I do not. <laughs> okay. But it's something to watch, right? I think changes in administration policy are always something to be mindful of. Um, right. So, yes, yes. Right. You've got okay. to keep all those factors in mind for sure. And, and I think I, just a, a final point, which we touched on, is just, you know, these are, these are the issues you deal with, you know, holding active mutual funds and taxable accounts. And folks should be aware it's just part and parcel of the territory. Okay, that's it for me, Jeff. Okay, bring us home, Bruce. First of all, we want to say thanks very much to uh, Chris Franz and Alec Lucas from Morningstar. And uh, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. Uh, if it's Monday, it's time for another podcast. We want to thank our sponsor, Allworth Financial, and the State of the Industry Podcasts. Along with Chris and Alex, we want to thank our Eric Kittner from Moneta. We also want to thank uh, Angelica Hester, our producer. And you can find the podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple and follow us on Spotify. You can reach uh, Jeff on Twitter uh, via at Benji Ryder. Uh, my handle is at PD News Guy. Uh, stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week. Thank you.